Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. VPR is staffed by Master of Public Policy students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Welcome to Academical. In this episode, we are joined by Melody Barnes, Professor of Practice at UVA's Miller Center. Previously, Professor Barnes had served in the office of Senator Ed Kennedy, then as director of the White House Domestic Policy Council under President Obama. She currently serves as the co-director of UVA's Democracy Initiative. We will touch on all of this and more in our interview. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Academical. My name is Jack DiMatteo, the outgoing editor-in-chief of the Virginia Policy Review. I'm joined today with Josh Margulies, who runs the Academical podcast, and we're very lucky to be joined by Melody Barnes, um, who has had a number of roles over the years and is currently leading the Democracy Initiative here at UVA. So I'll let Josh introduce himself quickly and, and then give Melody a chance to introduce herself to everyone and then we'll dive into some, some questions. Hello, listeners. I'm Josh Margulies. I'm sure you're familiar with me. Uh, I'm the <laughs> outgoing executive producer and host of Academical. And yeah, thank you very much for having us here at the Miller Center today. Uh, so please just introduce yourselves or introduce yourself and what you're doing here at the Miller Center in UVA. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm Melody Barnes and I'm the co-director for Policy and Public Affairs of the Democracy Initiative, which is a brand new initiative at UVA. And I'm also a professor of practice here at the Miller Center. And it's great to be with you all. There's a lot of outgoing. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I'm graduating very soon. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, great. Well, we, we are excited for the interview. And uh, we'll just dive right in and, and kind of go throughout your, your journey. Um, and you've made a lot of stops along the way. Uh, but one of your first was working for Senator Edward Kennedy uh, mm-hmm. on the Judiciary Committee. And we know Senator Kennedy uh, championed many issues, but one of them in particular was health care, which mm-hmm. is, of course, right back in the, the forefront of, of public debates. And I was curious how you would evaluate both the policy and the politics surrounding current conversations, particularly in the Democratic primary, um, of kind of a wide range of ideas on where to move forward from here on health care, ranging from kind of building on the ACA all the way to several ideas surrounding Medicare for all, which, of course, has different uh, iterations based on who's proposing it. But I'm curious how you, given your own background in healthcare, both Senator Kennedy and at the Domestic Policy Council, uh, how you think about these debates that are going on today. Absolutely. That's a great, that's a great question, Jack. Well, you're right about Senator Kennedy. He often called healthcare the great issue of our time. And what we really know is that it's been the great issue of many, many, many generations. We have tried to tackle this one for, well, a hundred years. And with good reason, because we know what the effects are for people who don't have health care. It's not just a health care issue, it's an economic issue, it's a jobs issue, it's an education issue, um, and it certainly weighs on people gravely. And when I was in the Domestic Policy Council, when I was the director, I had the privilege of working with the president on this issue and passing the Affordable Care Act. And it's an issue, I think, like for so many people, that's personal. I mean, the president, when we were in briefings, would talk about the effect on his family and his mother and watching his family struggle with these issues. Senator Kennedy talked about the same thing, a man who had every economic asset available to him but watching his son struggle with cancer 
and watching other families that didn't have those kinds of assets struggle in the same way. So we know there are access issues. We know that there are cost and affordability issues um, that, that face people. And I think right now we know that the ACA, even though lots of people, well, at one point lots of people didn't like the ACA but liked pieces of the ACA, um, I think now we see a larger part of the American populace that like the ACA, they like the things that they have with it, even though we have struggled as a country with health care costs. And there are other things that we did in the ACA that we have seen start to come together and start to work, you know, kind of the behind the scenes administration of health care issues. What I'm excited about, I guess a couple things. One, that this will be a front and center issue in the 2020 election. And the thing that I am, I think the thing that is so useful is that there will be a stark contrast for the American people. Yeah. That we know that President Trump has filed a brief with the intent of completely dismantling the Affordable Care Act. And at the same time, we have any number of the over 20 <laughs> Democratic <clears throat> uh, potential nominees who are talking about this issue and putting forth plans. And as you said in your question, there are some who are going for an, a Medicare for all, a single payer system. Um, there are lots of different ways to do a single payer system. And others that are taking um, more modest steps and then still others who are talking about addressing the challenges that are still confound the Affordable Care Act. When we were working on this in 2008, 2009, the president would often say, if we were starting from scratch from a blank sheet of paper, perhaps we would have constructed something different. But our goal at that time was to build on the existing system, recognizing what the Congressional Budget Office says now, which is that it is challenging when you are talking about something that is dramatically different from the system we have right now. Does it mean that we shouldn't address those issues, engage on those issues? We just know what the challenges are. And in 2008, 2009, 2010, we wanted to pass a piece of legislation that would move the country forward dramatically. So I'm excited about the fact that people want to engage on this, that there is a stark contrast that exists, and Americans will have the opportunity to look at their lives, to look at their pocketbooks, um, to look at the fact that, and I, I say this, and I, it will sound partisan, and it is, um, that for over 10 years, Republicans have been promising a great plan and a new plan and something different. And we don't have anything on the table that's credible. Uh, and so there is a choice between fixing the ACA or building something new on top of that with the plans that Democrats are putting forth or rolling the dice and takes, taking your chances based on what hasn't been put forth by President Trump. Yeah, absolutely. I think you make an interesting point, particularly about you know the idea of you know if we could build a healthcare system from scratch, what would it look like versus what's possible? And and I know that for example, President Obama originally fought for a public option in the ACA, and it kind of came down to either we're going to pass this without a public option, or we're not going to pass it at all. Absolutely and right. It seems like if you look at the impact that it's had subsequently, um, at least from perspective of the president and others who work in the administration, it would probably be an example of, you know, better is good. Right. I, you're exactly right about that. And But I think having gone through that debate and 10 years later that Americans are wrestling with 
healthcare in a way that they hadn't before, that the way a way that they had not when we took office in 2009. And there is a willingness to consider disaggregating, um, taking apart our healthcare system and doing something new that I think didn't exist um, at that point in time. But we still have to look at what are the costs, what are the benefits, um, where where they are felt, what does access look like, uh, what policy levers will can be put in place to address those issues, and then ultimately what is it, what, what will pol political will allow for. And then politicians, I think hopefully following the lead of the American public, will do something that will bring greater rationality to our healthcare system and continue to strengthen our healthcare system. Absolutely. Well, given uh, the work you've done and my own passion for healthcare, I imagine we could talk about healthcare <laughs> for a long time. But I'll uh, I'll pick up your story with the work you did after um, you were spending time with Senator Kennedy's staff, and you were the executive vice president for policy at the Center for American Progress, mm -hmm. a prominent think tank in D.C. Um, and so, on a broader level, you know, you mentioned how we're both outgoing, and several members of our class. Uh, who are graduating will be looking at think tank uh, roles uh, after graduation. And I'm curious what role you think that think tanks like uh, CAP uh, can play in policy debates and how they can be most valuable uh, in the policy sphere moving forward. I think think tanks play a significant role for a couple of different reasons, and there are significant ones across an ideological spectrum, from the Center for American Progress, Brookings Institution, um, AEI, Cato, the list, Heritage, the list goes on. So no matter what your beliefs are, there is a place for you if that's the kind of work you want to do. I know from having worked in Congress and in the White House, a vast majority of my career I spent, I can't even remember, you know, eight years with Senator Kennedy, three years on the House Judiciary Committee, three years in the White House, that when you are in those seats, it's hard to find time to in, look under every stone, look around every corner, um, do deep dives on every issue. Things are moving very, very quickly. You have more than one issue that sits in front of you that's your responsibility um, that you have to prepare your boss for. And the role that think tanks play is to look under those stones, look around those corners, investigate those issues, work with academics, uh, and to develop new ideas uh, and to help shape a policy agenda, help shape a nas the national debate in an important way. And they're heavily relied upon by members of Congress and the White House and journalists, mm -hmm. and in some cases, the public, you know, the, the super wonky public, um, <laughs> of which I am now one, um, and to provide ideas and to provide information and reports that can guide the policymaking process. So it's a very, very important uh, set of institutions that help to shape our policy conversations, debate, and ultimately new laws. Absolutely. I guess just a, a follow-up on that. Uh, in, you know, recent political cycles, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of or heard a lot of uh, talk about campaign finance and campaign finance reform and uh, the funding of political uh, campaigns and candidates at large. Mm -hmm. I guess uh, from a, a cynical standpoint, you know, you could say that think tanks are similarly funded by very large uh, institutions uh, and corporate corporations that have certain interests. 
is there not also a similar concern um, uh, with campaign finance reform? Should we not also think about that in, in light of how think tanks operate and, and the reliance of the, I guess, Congress and uh, the executive in utilizing those resources? Sure, and I think that's that's a great question. And almost every sector is being scrutinized in that way. I mean, philanthropies now is being scrutinized in, the, in that way. Individuals that have a particular agenda that are putting significant money uh, into behind issues, and I say this as a board member for uh, a foundation, uh, the private sector and the list goes on. One of the things that we did when I was at the Center for American Progress was to think very carefully about the relationship between the funding that we received and the work that we did. So that when reports were crafted, when ideas were developed and being put out, that no individual or no institution that was providing us money believed that their idea was going to become our idea. Now, obviously, people fund those things with which they, with whom they share a common belief system, value system, ideological perspective. <coughs> but we didn't translate, you know, a set of labor unions' ideas directly into our ideas. Sure. And there were certainly points at which people disagreed with thing, reports and ideas that were being developed. Um, I and I think. For a member of Congress that's working with a think tank, for a member of the public or the press that's looking at the work being done by a think tank, it's important to scrutinize and to understand the relationship between the resources that are being provided and the ideas that are that are being articulated. And at the same time, understand the reality that people align and work with those with whom they, they share a common agenda. But there's a difference between being bought and paid for and being supported. Sure. Understood. Yeah. Uh, so after CAP, uh, mm -hmm. this this is when you transition into uh, the Obama administration, mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. So we did want to focus on your time there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it, you're a wealth of knowledge, and we wanted to <laughs> kind of pick your brain a little bit. So you sure. served as the director of President Obama's Domestic Policy Council. Correct. So uh, would you care to just describe some of uh, the work you did in the portfolio? of issues and policies that you uh, were part of in your time in the administration? Absolutely. And, and I'll start out by saying, when the president asked me to take that job, we were in the transition, and it was November, it was uh, a week and a half or so before Thanksgiving. And it, it all happened very quickly. There was going to be a press conference on a, maybe a Tuesday, and this happened on a Friday. and. Um, I called home to tell my parents, and my mom said, oh, sweetheart, we are so proud of you. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, the policy councils are often unknown to those in the general world. But for those who don't know, inside the White House, there are three policy councils, uh, one that focuses on economics, one that focuses on national security, and the domestic policy council. One could argue that the DPC, the Domestic Policy Council and the NEC, the National Economic Council, are, um, are dupl sound duplicative, uh, but while they have overlapping responsibilities, they are different from one another, and that division came about during, I think, the Clinton administration. Um, and the responsibility of the DPC and the policy councils in general is to focus on the president's agenda, 
to work with and his priorities and to work with cabinet secretaries and other senior executive branch officials who are executing against that agenda to make sure, one, that there's an alignment between the broader executive branch and the White House, um, and to help to uh, shape, working with the president, the specifics around, in this case, his policy goals. And when you think about it, the White House is tiny. I mean, I describe it to people, it feels like, you know, someone going to your grandmother's house if your grandmother had a really nice house. <laughs> um, the, the stairwells are small, the hallways are small, you've got a lot of people bumping up into, into one another. And I say all that to say that the core White House staff is relatively small. There are, however, as we know, and many people cheer it, some people don't, there are hundreds of thousands of people working in agencies and departments uh, all over the country. And so they are carrying out the work of the, an administration day after day after day. Uh, it, is my, it was my job to work with, as I said, those senior leaders to focus on those things that were the priorities for the president. So for example, we knew going into the White House that education policy was a priority for President Obama, both K-12, pre-K, as well as post-secondary education. That's something that I worked on very closely with Secretary Duncan. Uh, we knew the healthcare was a priority and, and uh, uh, reforming the healthcare center uh, system was a priority. Uh, that's, we brought someone in, Nancy Ann DeParle, who ran that office, and I worked very closely with her, and we worked very closely with Kathleen Sebelius, um, who was secretary when I was, was still in the administration. So I worked on those issues. I worked on a host of civil rights issues. Um, ironically, I'd started working on hate crimes when and uh, hate crimes legislation when I worked for Senator Kennedy in the late 90s. It finally got signed into law when I was working for President Obama. Sometimes legislation takes a long time. Um, so it was a range of issues, things that you go into the office knowing you're going to work on because they're their priorities, but then they're also the big surprises. The things that you walk in the door in the morning, you don't know that's going to happen, and it smacks you in the face, and there you are having to manage it. So on that note, the smack you in the face moment. The <laughs> and I do mean smack. <laughs> <laughs> you came into office, or the Obama administration came into office, and you know you were along for the ride right when the financial crisis mm -hmm. was pretty much at its peak. Can you talk about that and some of the policy decisions that you had to, to, to face? Sure. Well, we knew during the campaign, it was probably by July, we could see the economy, you know, it was bumping along, but we just saw it sliding uh, off a cliff. And you probably remember, you know, the meeting, and I think Senator Kane uh, suspended his campaign. There was a meeting in Washington. There were meetings with the then George W. Bush administration uh, as uh, there were efforts to work on TARP and other uh, mechanisms to try and stabilize the economy. So all that was happening while we were still campaigning and certainly into the transition. Uh, I remember in December of that year, we were in transition and we had a meeting in Chicago with then President-elect Obama and Christy Romer, who was head of the Council of Economic Advisors, started, she was leading that briefing and she started it and, you know, I don't know what the rules are here, so I won't use bad words, <laughs> but she started by saying, Mr. President, this is your O bleep moment um, and started to describe what was happening to the economy. It is important to note that Christie's expertise was in the Great Depression <laughs> um, and that was quite relevant during that period of time. 
our goal was, the first goal was to craft a stimulus bill to try and pull the economy you know, off the, the edge of the cliff and to stabilize it and to kickstart growth. And we debated the size of a stimulus package. Um, and we also recognized that this was a one-shot deal. So the policy that we crafted could not have what we call a tail, mm -hmm. meaning that it couldn't last for years and years and years and years and years because that money wouldn't be there for years and years and years and years. At the same time, as has famously been quoted, you don't want to let a crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. And so we started to think about ways that we could uh, reform uh, introduce the president's reform agenda while also addressing the economic challenges. So we thought of, and thought about and executed on that pertaining to energy, pertaining to education, and a host of other issues. Great. Well, um, in the interest of time, even though we could spend a, a lot more, I think, on your Obama administration years, I do want to give you a chance to inform people a little bit more about this new democracy mm -hmm. initiative here at, at UVA. Um, so for those unfamiliar, maybe give a brief overview on the initiative's origins and goals, uh, and then what your vision is and, and your work on it for the coming years. I am so excited about this work. Um, and in fact, even before I was approached about becoming the co-director, I was thinking, what would I love to work on right now? And as much as I've enjoyed politics over the years, it felt to me, feels to me, that the challenges facing not only the United States, but the challenges facing democracies globally are even more dire, um, that they are, they are deeper than two and four year election cycle questions. And the Democracy Initiative is designed to address those issues. Again, not just domestically, but globally. And to focus on both scholarship and engagement you know, across the university, around the country, across disciplines, and around the world, bringing together actors from every discipline to focus on the challenges that face us right now and to enhance the practice of democracy. And we do that and have started to do that and we're going to build a program that focuses on research, that focuses on teaching, so that's a part of the student experience here, and that also focuses on public affairs. So how do we bring people in from public policy, from the private sector, from philanthropy, from non-governmental organizations, activists, to help us think about what the big questions are facing democracy, to also work with us as we're doing research to address those challenges. How do we shape the agenda? What are the smart policy ideas? What are the next order questions? Um, and then to move those ideas into the bloodstream. This isn't, uh, it just, this isn't intended to be an academic exercise. Um, the, the goal here is to bring serious thought, big ideas, uh, a lot of intentionality, to these challenges and to help address them. Absolutely. One, one question that I have given some thought to recently, um, and it's reappeared in some of the debates, even with, for example, Vice President Biden's announcement video, 
in which he describes the, the Trump administration and the election of President Trump as an aberration. And this debate between whether what we're seeing with this administration, this president in particular, is an aberration or an outgrowth of broader, deeper trends that had been bubbling under the surface for, for a time to come. And I'm curious how you think about that potential dichotomy and then how that might inform the work that you would do to promote democracy in the United States and around the world moving forward. Sure. Uh, well, I think the latter. Uh, politics, politics is a lagging indicator. Politics refle reflects the body politic. And what I believe we've been witnessing, for some people it's been a surprise, for some people it's been hidden, for some people it's been quite present, um, are frictions and sh a shifting of tectonic plates under the foundation of of our democracy and democracies around the world. This isn't, you know, oh wow, that, that started happening five years ago, or that started happening 20 years ago. I believe that there are foundational questions, issues foundational to our democracy and to our country in the United States that haven't been addressed, issues of, of inequity, um, and that has given rise to a lot of the friction and a lot of the anger, um, a lot of the concern, a lot of the worry. Um, and that has been exacerbated by things of, of late. Uh, new forms of media that can be helpful in bringing people together can also serve as a wedge uh, where there are factions and where there's friction to drive people apart. Uh, technology takes things that happen normally and, and takes it to scale. So it can ha things can happen more rapidly and more people can be affected and informed and Im impacted. Um, so all of that um, mixed with those frictions and those concerns, uh, whether it's technology or globalization, all of those things have come together to create the moment that we are in right now. And I think we are seeing it's a leitmotif in democracies around, around the world. Mm -hmm. Issues of economic insecurity, issues of uh, race, ethnicity, inclusion. Um, and you mix all of those things together and you find uh, people around the world that are feeling frightened and angry and looking, questioning democracy, challenging democracy, challenging norms uh, and policies and practices. Yeah. I, I know we have to wrap up shortly, but I do, I do want to ask the final question along those lines. What, in the midst of this moment where there are these deep-rooted anxieties here and abroad, what gives you hope um, for the future that we can restore democracy and the basic tenets of Western liberalism? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> to give our listeners something. To yeah, when I get up to, in the morning, <laughs> and and I say all this, and I am a hopeful. Not only am I an optimist by nature, but I I remain hopeful. I mean, one of the things for all of the challenges that sit in the bone structure of our democracy. Also sitting in our, the DNA of our democracy is this idea of perfectibility. And when you think about it, and you know, there are letters that went back and forth uh, between Adams and Jefferson and during the time of the Constitutional Convention. And Jefferson wrote to Adams and said, basically, I hope, I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to this, hope it passes, and if it does, but we've got some things wrong, I hope future generations will fix it. Mm. And we have been in the process of fixing things ever since. Mm. I mean, based on this untested, bold, crazy idea 
of a constitutional republic, which is actually what we are, um, we have been addressing some of these issues. I think the challenge is that we are, have been afraid, almost feeling fragile, when it comes to looking boldly and squarely in the eye of some of the big challenges and taking them on and addressing them. This moment requires us to do that because despite what we believe, despite the symbolism, our country isn't inevitable. I mean, it requires us to take responsibility and to take action. So the hope I have, what gives me hope is the fact that we have a choice and we can address this, we can do this if we want to. I choose to engage and I think you all probably do too and I hope others will as well. Just one follow-up on the democracy initiative, just out of my own curiosity, mm -hmm. is the intent to have this being a U.S.-centric, uh, I guess, program within the Miller Center, and what can the U.S. do in terms of helping to foster democracy abroad, or is this, what can societies around, and international communities do to themselves uh, support democracy on their own terms. Sure, it's more the, it's more the latter. Okay, we are very firmly focused on domestic and global. Mm. We in, and being interdisciplinary as well. And there are questions that America needs to ask and answer about its form of democracy and the challenges that we face. There are things that we have and can continue to share with. Uh, allies of liberal democracy globally, but there are also things that we can learn from democracies around the world and things that we can work on with those who are living and working in democracies around the world um, to address challenges that we all face. So this is absolutely a both-and proposition. Absolutely. Well, I will uh, pivot here in our, in our final minutes. Um, and uh, really quickly, um, I, I, I do have a closing question, but first, you might have heard the news today that Batten has just hired a new dean, yes. Ian Solomon. I'm yes. wondering if, you, if you've worked with Ian at any point. I know that he has a background uh, in then-Senator Obama's office, so if your paths have crossed at all, and uh, maybe your thoughts on, on this future exciting new step for the Batten School. And it is exciting indeed. I have known Ian uh, for a while now, and he is a fantastic leader. I think he's a great leader for Batten. He has a, a multi-sector perspective. Uh, he has worked uh, in lots of interesting places in the policy world as well as in the private sector. So I, I think for students not only at Batten but students on across grounds, he will bring an interesting perspective that's based on scholarship. I mean he's also got time spent at some of the best institutions in the United States, best institutions in the world, um, but also the experience in the lens of a practitioner. And he's also a great guy, <laughs> and he's smart and funny and thoughtful, and I'm thrilled. I'm really looking forward to working with him. Great. Well, to, to conclude with, with a final question, um, you're talking to two people who are both going into federal government uh, in just a couple of months after graduation. and. 
hopefully our, our listeners uh, who have a passion for public service as well. And so I'm curious, uh, as we conclude, what advice you might offer those of us who want to follow your example and enter careers in public service um, and, the, and, you know, following that path that can be challenging but rewarding um, based on your own time doing it, uh, mm -hmm. what advice would you give to us? Well, one, I think you are about to start one of the most exciting journeys, professional journeys that you can have. I loved my time in public service. It is genuinely an honor to do that work. And I think, unfortunately, over the past few decades, those in public service have taken hits, uh, whether they be political appointees or they are uh, civil service workers. But A, most of the people I encountered in public service are smart, committed, hardworking, uh, patriotic people who care about the country and care about doing their best work. So you will find wonderful colleagues in public service. Um, but in addition to that, the work that you have the opportunity to do, I mean, in so many ways it goes to the found, back to the founding of the country and this idea of civic health and civic virtue and caring about the common health and security of, of everyone in a society. And the opportunity to get up every day and to do that work is, is thrilling. So I would suggest that you, A, get to know your colleagues and the people uh, may, who may or may not be working with you directly, but working in other parts of government, um, to spend time in other parts of government. Um, wherever you are going next, think about, you know, you know, if you're working in the House, think about working in the Senate. Um, think about working in the executive branch. Think about working in a White House or a department or an agency or for the, at the judiciary. Um, and those perspectives will be interesting. But in addition to that, and one of my good friends has done this, worked at every level, local, mm -hmm. state, and federal. And when you do that, you, know, you realize where you sit is where you stand. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there are times that a good friend of mine, we were working in the Senate together, and he said, well, when I was at the Department of Justice, I used to think, oh, Congress, I can't believe they did that. And then you get to Congress, you're like, oh, I can't believe that the Department of Justice did that. You get a different perspective that's useful, and that helps you problem solve in a diff different way, but I think in a better way. So take full advantage of that. And when I would do this, every institution I left, the last day I was there, last day I was in the Senate, I walked around the Capitol by myself. My last day in the White House, I walked those grounds by myself. And you think about who's been there before you and the things that they've done and think about the opportunity that you have to do great things for the nation and realize what a privilege it is. Well, I think that would be a uh, perfect stopping point. So first, I actually want to thank Josh Margulies uh, for his leadership of this podcast throughout the entire year. You know, uh, this didn't exist actually prior to this year. Josh really, through through sheer force of will, brought this into existence. <laughs> and uh, we're really excited about it and really grateful to you for everything you did. Thanks for um, letting me, like, pretty much create in this little playground here. <laughs> yeah, and thank you, uh, Professor Barnes, for, you know, helping us wrap out, or, you know, wrap up the, the first season of Academical. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Uh, and I guess before we go, do you have any plugs that you want to <laughs> throw out there? Or do you have any recommendations on books or podcasts that you're, you're oh, invested in? Wow. I mean, there is such a stack of books sitting uh, beside <laughs> my desk, my by my bedside table. You know, I've uh, finished John Meacham's book, um, which is great. And he'll the be Soul speaking. Of America. Yeah, he'll be speaking um, at Press Fest. And he's got a new book coming out 
Um, so that's a teaser. Um, and I read uh, recently How Democracies Die, um, The People Versus Democracy. Both of those are really instructive and interesting books. Um, on the you know, non-policy side <laughs> of the table, uh, Bad Blood, which is about Theranos, um, um, which is... Yeah. Uh, Mind-boggling. I was like, I wish people were just throwing millions of dollars at me for something that didn't actually exist. But it, it is. Uh, there's a there's a story. There are lessons to be learned uh, there. So that's also another another great book. I mean, there's so there's so many good things that, like I said, are stacked up um, beside my desk. Ibram Kendi will be here for Press Fest, um, and he wrote a National Book Award uh, a winning book called Stamped from the Beginning. Um, and it's, uh, tell, it's the story of race in America mm-hmm. and is considered kind of the next big book after mm-hmm. Winthrop Jordan's um, White Over Black. Um, so there are a lot of really great things to read out there. Awesome. Well, I am currently reading Valerie Jarrett's memoir, so a good reminder of the work that you and, and your colleagues did in the administration. So thank you for your devotion public service, and thank you so much for being with us for the podcast today. I really appreciate your time and, and everything you're doing here at UVA. Great. Well, thanks and congratulations to you both. Great. Thanks. Thanks. And that is a wrap on season one of Academical. Thanks for listening. You can follow VPR on Twitter at VA Policy Review and on Facebook and LinkedIn at Virginia Policy Review. Links can be found in the show notes to this episode. Editing for this episode was done by yours truly. Our music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. As always, be excellent to each other.